I looked up the word adornment, um, the word ornament, same basic root word here, um, to embellish or to, uh, to add luster to adorn those ideas, those come together. Um, and, uh, and so the, the idea of wearing a stole or uh, it's called a tippet uh, is the kind of Christian name for wearing this type of uh, preaching scarf thing. Um, it, here's, here's why I want to do this. One, we decorate the trees and we decorate the eaves of our houses. Why not decorate the pastor, right? I mean, it just, it just follows to do that. <clears throat> My uncle wore one. He was a Methodist minister um, for his whole, I get well, essentially his whole adult life. And, uh, and so he always wore one because that's part of the tradition in the Methodist Church, the United Methodist Church as well. Um, and it is supposed to, in the more traditional congregations, it has a certain, li- uh, you know, a certain um, office assigned to it and things like that. And that's, that's not why I'm wearing it. But um, during, during Christmas season, I feel such a strong connection to the billions who will be celebrating the birth of Christ, even if they don't know really that that's what they're doing. Um, even if they don't have a grasp really on what they're doing when they do that and, and what it means. But even more so, I feel, um, I feel a strong connection during these weeks um, to the others who do know why they're celebrating, who call on the name of Christ. There's two billion plus people in the world who will be celebrating Advent um, around the world. And again, differently than maybe we would but that connection point of the birth of Christ, the advent of Jesus Christ, that we all agree is the most significant event in human history since creation, um, we would be in agreement on. And so the different things that connect us with the, the traditions of our Orthodox forefathers, um, I just feel that more strongly during this season. I don't know if you do as well, but I love that. I love that connection. Uh, Paul and I actually had a gentleman come up between the services who was a, a, he's a retired pastor from one of those denominations and just was really just kind of being so grateful that our church connects in these different ways as well. And he's like, he said, more importantly, you know, the way you unpack God's word is, is, is what's it all about. And yet at the same time, it's just neat to be able to connect to that, to have celebrating Advent, the candles, um, the stole here. So um, and for some reason, ornamentation um, helps me to make that connection, to experience that connection, the advent, the traditions, all those different things. And so I hope that's the same for you um, as we unpack God's Word this morning. We have a break from Daniel for the next few weeks um, because a couple of reasons. One, it is Advent, and we want to stop and, and consider what that means uh, as for our lives over the next few weeks as we're preparing our hearts and souls to celebrate this most spectacular event um, as well, and the, the meaning of it. Um, also, as we really were thinking about it, going through the life of Daniel, you know, the, an exile, disconnected from family, all the things that were normal to him, not being able to celebrate the way he likes to celebrate, not being able to relate to who he wants to relate to, feeling like the culture around him was broken and strange, like it didn't know him and he didn't know it. We just couldn't come up with any real application um, for our lives in regards to that. So that was meant to be a joke for those of you who didn't connect that. I bet some of you out there caught that online. Um, no, actually, what's interesting is um, I'm glad we made this decision because I feel like Daniel is so on the nose, um, similar to what we're experiencing in our nation now, that to take a break um, from the current, from the moment, and focus on eternity almost requires us to take a break from Daniel too. 
Um, because Daniel is, again, so specifically, what he's experiencing is so directly what we're experiencing that it's hard to not feel that sense of hope and peace, love and joy that we celebrate during Advent. All right, so the plan is, um, uh, I also want to make one other little comment. I left off, I think last week or the week before, I mentioned some different sources I go to for, quote, news, um, for input as to what's going on. And I left out the Denison Forum, um, which is one that is is also near and dear to my heart. Um, Jim Denison is a, a friend, and, and they do a great daily report. It's almost a devotional. Um, it's a little bit less news-focused than some of the others, but um, but it's also a great, if, you, if you're looking for a daily devotional, really, as a podcast, it, it kind of doubles as that as well. So I really would encourage you to be getting the, the insights into the current events of the day, not only from the secular media, but from Christian men and women um, who interpret it that way as well. Um, uh, okay, so we're starting in this four-part series, or maybe kind of five parts, of Good News of Great Joy. Um, this message that has been given to us by looking at the Advent in the four Gospels. Um, and, and so these four men, uh, and we're going to do it in this order, John, Luke, Matthew, and Mark, because we're going to emphasize the order in which things happened in Advent. Um, not the order of the Gospels in our Bible, not the order of when the Gospels were written, which is almost that reverse order, but, but the order of what happened when it comes to the timeline of Advent itself. Um, and so John, where we're going to start in the book of John today, um, John begins the Advent in the beginning. And I, I, by beginning, I mean the beginning. I don't mean when a virgin got pregnant from the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't mean when an angel comes to deliver information. I mean the beginning. Um, baby Jesus isn't even directly mentioned in the book of John. And that may be troubling to some people, the fact that baby Jesus is not mentioned, that there is no stable, there are no wise men, there's no shepherds. Why not? Why doesn't John cover the same ground that Matthew covered and that Luke covered? Well, I think that's one of the reasons. Matthew covered it and Luke covered it. And John would have had a copy of Matthew and Luke. He would have read them, he would have seen them, he would have had conversations with them. Um, so this was done, and it was done in such a way that I think John just didn't feel like that was something he needed to reemphasize. Also keep in mind, John <clears throat> has a very specific purpose. Unlike Luke, which is intended to be a historical account of Jesus um, that has been, uh, Paul will talk about this more next week, I'm sure, but that has been probably almost commissioned um, by Theophilus that, that Luke do this research and get this done um, John has a very specific focus in his book. Some of you may remember that because we spent two and a half years going through the book of John with this focus in mind, right? Um, ironically, it was really cool to go back. This passage from John chapter 1 that I'm going to be teaching today is a passage that Paul taught almost three years ago now, a little over three years ago now. And so I haven't got to teach through this section to you from the book of John, um, so that's, that's exciting, which that means... Later, if you want to hear this passage taught well, you'll need to go into the archives at the website and, uh, and hear Paul teach it. All right, so John 20, 31 gives us John's purpose in his book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's focus is not what happens at the Advent, but who. Who is the Advent about? Who is, if I may, adventing? Um, Advent just means to come, to show up, to appear. 
So someone is coming. And John is focusing on who is coming. Who is coming? Someone not of this world is coming to live in this world. John 17, 16, Jesus is referring to his disciples and says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. In other words, Jesus is saying, now his disciples are different just as he was different. He's not from the world. He's, he's in the world, but he's not of the world. He's not from the world. It is important that we as Christians, because it's easy for us to be focused on how much the world maybe hates us sometimes. Certainly, how much the world hates God sometimes. But it's important for us to remember that though the world hates Him, He loves the world. Um, If we were to study John again in a couple of chapters, we would get to the passage where John references the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, where he says those all-important words, that he so loves the world, that this world that hates him and reviles him and mocks him and spits on him, and will do so with his followers as well, he is overcome with his love for that very world, to such a degree that the Advent happened. That's why the Advent happened. That's what motivated the Advent was his love for the world. There are a lot of babies that come into the world. Um, Lots of them, all the time. And each of them in their own way brings hope. Every new life, every new child conceived is precious. Every child from the moment of conception is sacred, the bearer of God's image and his life that he gives as a gift. It's, It's super important to us. We talk about it a lot and we engage with it. But though lots of babies come and though they represent hope, hope for the race of mankind, that mankind will continue as a race. The hope for the special destiny of that child, that this child will have some special thing they're going to accomplish, that the, the life they're going to lead is, is going to be extraordinary in all the ways that many of our lives are. But this baby that we're going to be talking about, the Advent, this God who was coming, this, this man who was coming, this human child that was coming, what makes this Advent go from merely special to something cosmically epic is who he is. Who is coming? This advent changes everything. This advent represents the new and and the best information that we as humans have received since we were created in the first place. John introduces this concept with a special word. And the word that he uses is word. To wrap all of this up, this Greek word, logos, the word, that to wrap this whole idea that this is God, and this is God's presence, and this is God's person, and this is, this is all that there is about God is showing up. His word matters. God is speaking. God is acting. He's doing so according to his character, according to his nature, according to his plan. His word is himself. There are great consequences where God's word is. Everything that was created was spoken into existence, an expression of God's Word. Look at all the amazing things. We're going to spend this sermon looking at all the amazing things presented just in John chapter 1 about this Advent, about the who who was coming. What makes this baby special? Here we go. Well, one, in an effort to not bury the lead, we'll start with this. This child is God. The strange condition of the Creator being born into creation, like one of the created. 
This is definitely an advent. But it's more than an advent. It's the advent. It's the one that everything pivots around. Isn't it, isn't it fascinating that all around the world, people will be celebrating the advent? Many of them won't even know it. Many of them have no idea what they're celebrating. They just know they're celebrating family and alcohol. Like that's the, If they watch the media, that's the two things that are talked about all the time in regards to this season. They don't have any idea that they're celebrating. I don't know about you guys, but uh, years ago, I can't even hardly watch it because it's so epic to me, I get tears. Years ago, you remember when they used to have these um, uh, oh, crowd uh, moments when someone would suddenly show up and like start singing in a crowd, and then it would turn out there's a whole choir hidden in the crowd. Y'all seen this? If, you, if you've not seen this, then when you get home, YouTube uh, um, would have funny that that's a verb. YouTube, um, YouTube uh, flash mob choir, uh, hallelujah chorus. Or, or maybe food court or something like that. And every time I watch it, this group of people gets up and they start singing and there's some their famous choir and they're scattered throughout a food court and they all get up and start singing and they're singing the Hallelujah Chorus. And the reason I can't even watch it is because the gospel is being presented to a room full of people by a bunch of singers, probably most of whom have no idea that that's the gospel. And yet it's still being presented to them in this beautiful form. It, it, it boggles my mind. We still celebrate this Advent, even billions probably of people who don't know that's what they're celebrating. As sad as that is, it's also glorifying. This is the Advent. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now God is going to be experiencing life as a human being. And as we see over the next few weeks, experiencing life as a newborn which is just wild to consider God in newborn form. Philippians 2, 5-8 unpacks this. Philippians 2 is a key passage for our church. We encourage people to memorize the first 16 verses of Philippians 2 um, because it helps us to interact with one another well. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. This is the amazing picture of Jesus, a, the God himself, God on earth, coming to experience life as a human, and not just any human, but a poor servant who went to the point of death, and not just any death, but the death of a cross. Why would God come to earth to experience life as a human? That is a question we all should be asking at some point in Advent. Why did he do this? Thinking, who does this kind of thing? The answer is caught up in today's concept when we go through the Advent candles. Today's concept, the question of hope. Where do we find hope? Where do we get hope? Hope is the belief in a better future. Hope is the belief that things can be good. Hope is the belief in a good tomorrow, at least in a good someday. That things can get better. It's why we don't put hope in, in powerless people. You don't put hope in them because they're power, they don't have any power to change the future. They don't have any influence over tomorrow. You're, we're going to discover as we go through this why it is so poor to put any cause sense of hope in anyone other than God. It's just empty. It's just, it's just wishful thinking. In Him was life, it says. Why did He come? Verse 4, in Him was life, and life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, Jesus came, the advent happened, to bring some things to the race of man. To bring life to death. Light to darkness. 114, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So He came to bring life to death and light to darkness, and He also came to bring grace and truth. Now, if you would just look around you in your world today, look around you in the world that you see, in the media that you see, no matter what side of the issues of the moment you're on, something any of us who are rational should be able to see at this point is that when human beings take hold of something, there's two things they don't bring to the picture, grace and truth. There is none of it being coming from humans. If you don't believe me, keep watching. Just keep watching the media and ask yourself at the end of every, every show you watch, of every episode you watch, of every video you watch, of every everything, and go, wow. Look at all the grace and truth brought to this situation by humans. And see if that doesn't come across as absurd every time you say it. Wow, look at that. All that grace and truth. It's not there. This is, this is part of the... Of, we should all be able to agree on the fact that this is a huge problem and that someone better bring some grace and truth to the picture. Or we're not... We don't have any. And 2,000 years ago, that was not better They weren't in a better situation than us 2,000 years ago. If anything, it was much worse. There was no grace and truth. That's that's, that's because that's the human condition. When we reach in and take hold of our own problems with our own power and our own might and with our own understanding, we make it worse. We do it time after time because we don't have the capacity to bring much grace and truth to things on our own. This is one of the apologetics, the reasons that, that help me hold to my faith. I, I don't know a lot about a lot of things, but I know people pretty well. And people, people did not come up with this gospel. We don't do this. Grace and truth is not our solution to problems. When we get hold of something, I mean, look at our religions. Every time we take hold of even grace and truth and try to turn it into a religion, we make it worse. Every world religion is just worse. It's just we're not fixing the problem when we take hold of it and go, you know what we need with this is a whole bunch of rules and rituals to surround this grace and truth. Then we will know how to live in grace and truth because rules and rituals are all about grace and truth. No, they're not. And so the problem is we keep making it worse and we can't solve this. And God said, this needs to be solved. So he came. He came to bring life to death, something we still can't do. He came to bring light to darkness, which we're not even good at that. I mean, yeah, the incandescent light bulb. That's our closest version of it is to turn on switches and get electricity, but we don't bring much light. We don't bring much clarity where clarity is lacked. We tend to just confuse things the more we talk. This is, this is huge. We didn't come up with this. So who did? Verse, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This idea that God said, I'm bringing, why, I, why am I coming to experience life as a human? Why the advent? One, life to death, light to darkness, grace and truth, and adoption 
for the orphans. See, we all have this, this, this message of captives being set free. We desire this. We, we seek this out. What makes this kid special? Not like every other child who was born? Well, he's God. And he came to experience life as a human to bring these things that only God could bring. Because mere humans, we just muddy this stuff. As God... He is also creator. So he came as God and he came as the creator, the one who understands the problem and who understands the solutions. Chapter 1, verse 3, All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. you got to love John's effort to plug any holes here. That you're like, well, what about this? Well, was it made? Yes. Then he made it. But what about this? Well... Was it made? Yes. Then he made it. Like it's a, he's trying to make sure no one can find a wiggle out of this if it was made. Now, of course, as we talk about in our Skeptics Anonymous class on on Wednesday nights, there are consequences of what was made that he didn't make. Evil, error, those, those are consequences of making good things is that those type of things can happen. Those can be consequences that come later. He didn't create those. What he created was good and a fallen or twisted or perverse or just prideful race. Um, or creation, creation can twist those things. But everything that was made was made good when it was made and made by Him. Um, there, there is another theory some, uh, about God that comes around, and we're pro- it's probably going to gain prominence um, over the next few years more and more, kind of the, what's called the Spinoza God, this idea of that, that's not the God of the universe, it's the God that is the universe. That the universe is in and of itself an expression. God, it is God itself. The universe is God. Um, this is also similar, weirdly enough, to the Hindu, Hindu pantheism mons, mindset that, that all that is, is God. That's not the Christian view. In the, in the Hindu view, or maybe even in the Spinoza view, that the chair is God, and the, and the stage is God, and the tree is God, and we are God, and everything. That's not the, that's not the Christian view. The Christian view is that there is, a, is the rational Christian view, at least, is of the self-existent creator God. There is a God who exists who exists because He is God and for no other reason than that is His nature and His identity. And that He spoke things into creation, again, the Word of God speaking things into creation. To quote the Apostle Paul from Colossians 1, verse 16, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. All actual things were created by Him, invisible and visible. We've talked about that the last few weeks, the invisible creation. And how God created that as well, and in giving certain freedoms, then we get to see the sad results of the rebellion of some of His creation, including ours. But notice he didn't just make it, he holds it together. Um, when I teach on creation theory, which is always fun to me, I'm going to talk about all the different things that you could believe about creation and still be on board with the Christian view of creation, which is much wider than many of us know. There are a couple of things that, are, that need to be in place in order for us to be on the boat, so to speak, um, with Christian doctrine. Um, I used to love doing this because... Because if those of you who are VeggieTales fans, at the end of every VeggieTales episode, we got this deeply theological statement explaining what are the two absolute requirements to believe about creation. Bob and Larry would say what? 
Remember? What, how does it end? God. God made you special. And? And he loves you very much. Very good. Those are deeply significant theological statements. Teleology. God made you special. His creation was part of a plan. He knew what he was doing. It was on purpose. He, he did this. He connected all this. That's what teleology means. Purpose. Design. God made you special. He made all of us special. There was a plan in place. And not only did he make you special, but still to this day, this very moment, he loves you very much. Providence. He is still holding it together. He's holding you together. He's holding me together. He's holding all of creation together. He created us special. And to this day, to this very moment, no matter how alone or dark or depressed we could feel, he loves us very much. Providence. That's what the founders, when you read their writings, they use the word providence all the time. And sometimes people uh, kind of minimize that. Yeah, don't. That is a reference to Almighty God's involvement in day-to-day life. That's, that's providence. So he is the creator as well as God, God the creator. He's also, amazingly, Jesus came because he was the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the hope for the nations. John 1.41 you have Andrew, Andrew's account of Jesus. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. The woman in the well uses this term as well. Um, the only two in John who use the term Messiah about Jesus. But what is a Messiah? I mean, we all think Christ is just his last name, right? That's how they told him apart from Jesus Goldstein and Jesus Smith was, you have Jesus Christ, right? That's not right. That's, it's a title, a liberator, a savior, The Hebrew concept of one who sets the people of Israel free from bondage. That there's something we need to be set free from. And we sense that inside of us. For example, Cyrus the Great, who we've been talking about the last few weeks, the king of Persia, of the Medo-Persians, that king is described in Isaiah 45.1 as a Messiah. That term is used for him as well because he set captives free. His, his, his decree is what let the people of Israel go home. And so he is given the title of a Messiah. So the Christ, the Messiah, Christ the Latin term, it means the same thing, but it literally means an anointed one. And isn't this fascinating? We love Messiah stories. Just think about, when you think about the great epic stories that we read and love Think how often there's a chosen one, a prophesied one. That there's a prophecy about one special person who's different than everybody else, who's going to change the nature of everything. How much we love those. The Star Wars saga, which does that multiple times, sometimes better or worse. Then we have, think about the Harry Potter series, which is all about that exact same picture, The Matrix all of these great stories, if we go back, the Lord of the Rings has this hidden king who's, who's all hidden, and then he's got to go through the, the land of the dead for three days and come out, and now he's got the power to heal people with his hands and conquer his enemies. Not subtle, Tolkien. We, we got it, right? So, so this whole idea of, of this epic account, it's hardwired into our soul. God has hardwired this, I believe, into us that we love Messiah stories because it was always part of his plan. For that to be hardwired into us so that we would recognize it isn't that these are all stories that we've created. It's that these are all stories that connect us to the story. 
that we are a people who need a Savior. It's a great picture, a beautiful idea that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but an anointed one. When was He anointed? This is my opinion. My opinion, of course, He was anointed a couple of times by women with oil in His life. But I think we get a cosmic anointing, a divine anointing that we actually also see in John 1, 32 and 33. And John bore witness, this is John the Baptist speaking, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I think this is meant to be a picture of Jesus' anointing. How does God anoint? God anoints with the Holy Spirit. How does God baptize? He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I think this is Jesus being set apart in this special way, in this moment, that the Spirit doesn't just descend on him, but it remains there, like oil on his head. So I think, I think we're looking at this anointed Jesus, the Messiah. So he came to set captives free. He came to bring life to death and light to darkness. He came to bring grace and truth. He came to adopt those of us who are orphans. We know at some level in our hearts, we're looking for this. We need someone to want us. We need someone to choose us. We're desperate for someone to pick us. At some level, whether we come from really great functional families or just radically dysfunctional families, there's some piece of us in our soul that is looking to be chosen. And the cosmic idea that God sent His Son to come choose us to be His little brothers and little sisters is an amazing picture. Also you have in this chapter the Lamb of God, 129. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul will probably talk more about this next week because he's going to be teaching out of Luke next week and the shepherds are pretty important in the book of Luke, the shepherd account. The idea that God takes away, that came to earth to experience life as a human who takes away the sin of the world. He's the fulfillment of temple sacrifices. He's a lamb for this special purpose. I'm not going to dive off on this. Every Sunday morning, though, at about 8.40, we take uh, communion together um, for anyone who wants to be here at that time to prepare our hearts, those of us who are leading and whatever, and for anybody else who would want to come for, uh, for communion. But I remember experiencing for the first time in my 20s the Passover, a Passover meal, and being really honestly angry that I had gone all of my life up till that point being given this little cracker and given this, this little thing of juice um, and going... No one ever explained it to me through the lens of what it really was that Jesus is saying. You see this, this piece of bread, this messianic bread, this hidden bread for the Passover meal? Every year for all of your life, Peter, John, your whole life, you've been every year coming and breaking this off and having it broken for you and handed out for you. And your fathers and mothers did, and their fathers and mothers did, back for maybe a couple of thousand years. And every single time that was done, boys, every single time someone broke that bread... It was my body. It's always been my body. The Messianic bread was me all along. I am the fulfillment of this thing that Jewish families have been doing since Moses. And you see that cup, that cup, the cup that you're going to drink out of, the cup of redemption, that's my blood and it always has been. It's always been my blood that redeems. The only thing that can truly redeem is my blood. And so you've been experiencing that all along. I can't even imagine what they felt. But it was a, 
at my, what I felt the first time experiencing that, going, this is what we've been doing all along? What? Now it begins to make sense in different ways. It was so shocking. I can't imagine what it would have been for them. Not only that, not only the lamb, but the rabbi. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them in chapter 1, verse 38, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? A rabbi, a guide, a shepherd, a teacher, teacher of word and deed. You do what I do and you follow what I say. The rabbinical system, which was developed around the time of Jesus, um, was, this, was this system wherein you would have a teacher and they would have a certain group of students who would follow them around and watch what they did and just listen to them speak, almost like little passive sponges. And they would ask questions at the proper times and, and he would engage with them as his students and teach them and help them learn. It's a powerful thing to experience if you've ever been in the rabbinical role. That just means a disciple maker. If you've ever been a coach or a teacher or, or taught children in children's ministry, which again requires all of us at this church, if you're involved in these different things, the, the glory and the joy that comes when you, when you hear someone putting, you, putting the words that you've taught them, the deeds that you've taught them, back out into the world. When I, have someone, I hear someone ask one of the counselors at Aletheia, how do I handle this situation? And I hear the words that come out of their mouth are what I taught them years before. And you think, I hope that's right. Because, you know, anyway. Or, or a few years ago, I've used this example, when Paul was in student ministry role and, and, Mark, and Mark and Ellie came, into the, came to, when I took them home, all excited because of this incredible insight that they had gotten from Paul about the Apostle Peter getting out of the boat. And though he sank, at least he got out of the boat and the passion in them about, I need to make sure I'm getting out of the boat. I'm not playing it safe in my Christian faith. And me thinking, I know where Paul heard that the first time years and years ago sitting probably around a campfire or in an upper room at Pine Cove as, we taught, as I taught that concept to young guns. Get out of the boat. And now to have my children teaching me about getting out of the boat and reminding me the importance of that. There's very few things better than this, and that's the system that Jesus was living out with these guys. You could, you could ask somebody, what do you believe about this issue? And the answer they would give, you would go, oh, I'll bet so-and-so student, because that's the same answer they give. What a cool picture. This is the picture of Jesus as the rabbi, the teacher, the example. He's also the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, John the Baptist himself, who serves as the main witness in chapter 1, was also the fulfillment of prophecy. The Pharisees and the teachers ask him who he was. Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? These are the two people they were looking for to come before the Messiah. And strangely, it's a strange passage, John says no to both of those. But then when they say, okay, then who are you? 40, verse 3, which we read earlier. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Which is a prophecy that the Jewish leaders would have thought was about Elijah and or the prophet. So he's clarifying their teaching in that moment. We'll talk more about this as we look in the book of Matthew, but I want to close our time today with the testimonies that are so clear here in chapter 1. Every one of these, all of these, there are so many titles and names given to Jesus in John chapter 1. John wants us, as we read through John 1, to hear so clearly in the Advent that what's significant is who. Who this is. The who must be the foundation. If it's just some baby born and put in swaddling clothes, the shepherds came and thought was a cool baby, and that even some wise men came from the east and thought was a king, well, that's good. We've had lots of babies and we've had lots of kings. I don't know if we've had lots of children born and put in mangers, but, but maybe... 
But if that's all he was, then that's cool, that's special, it's a beautiful story. We can all think it's really sweet, but it doesn't change anything. But if the who is established, this is God himself come to experience life as a human being, to set us free, this longing we have inside. Listen to these testimonies. Philip, in 148, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. At that stage in their theological development, they thought of him as the son of Joseph. About four years later, they'll have a different insight. John the Baptist in 129, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Andrew, when he's talking to his brother Simon, as we mentioned, Simon Peter said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Nathaniel, soon after that first conversation, is going to say that he is the King and he's the Son of God. This is but the Son of God. This is a powerful picture. John chapter 1 is the powerful picture that as we celebrate the Advent, we recognize it's not just clever to say he's the reason for the season. There is no season without him. There's none of this without him. And there's not just none of Christmas without him. There's none of nothing without him. This is, this is, the, this is the power that holds everything together by him and for him and through him. All things were created and he holds that together. We doubt and we struggle but do we really think that the gospel of Jesus Christ, of grace and truth, was something that some human being thought up? I haven't met him. I haven't met that human yet. We solve things with our own hands, and usually we just break it. Hey, so you'll know, just like these guys, I have found him, and so have many of you. This needs to be our message during Advent. Hey, look who I found. You won't believe it. That person you're looking for, that source, that meaning, that identity, that foundation, the foundation for identity, the family that I've always wanted for me and for everyone I love, whether you come from an awesome family or a radically dysfunctional family, we need to be adopted into this family. That Jesus would come to rescue a bunch of little brothers and little sisters for himself. I have found the one who sets us free. And I want everyone to know about him. He, uh, we, we all have known deep down inside for a long time that we need someone to save us, to protect us, to, pro to want us, to choose us, to purchase us, to name us, to cherish us, to adopt us. And we all know that, and I would pray that you wouldn't let this Advent season go by. If you already know Him and you have been adopted by Him, that we can celebrate in spirit and in truth and in amazing, awesome, free ways. And if you don't, don't let this season go by without knowing Him. Please don't miss Him. Please don't give up on hope. Look to this true source of hope. As John said, we don't, we don't need another one. We've got this one. Everything else is just ornamentation. Added on top. It's good in its place. It's a nightmare when it's trying to replace the real thing. It's totally worthless there. So to say, how do we, how, whether it's our trees and our, and our eaves and whatever else that we decorate, to remember this is really what it's all about. Fundamentally what it's all about. When I have this debate um, with, with sometimes with atheists and they bring up the problem of suffering, they say, like, there's so much suffering in the world. How can you believe in a God? I'm like, you realize that by taking away God, you don't change the amount of suffering. We all agree there's tons of suffering. 
The difference between you and me is I have a hope in there being meaning in that suffering sometimes, that, that God can bring meaning and value even in the midst of horrific suffering. You've got nothing. You have nothing to offer your children and your friends when they suffer. This, though, is the truth. We have a hope. And the hope isn't something outside of us that came here to save us. We didn't come up with that. 